I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks to Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, Marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. This week, we talked to our first mystery series author, Jess Montgomery. The first book in her four-book kinship mystery series is The Widows, which introduces us to Lily Ross, a wife and mother in 1920s rural Ohio, whose husband Daniel, the county sheriff, is killed in the line of duty. The town council asks Lily to take over the sheriff's position for the rest of his term, and the first crime she wants to investigate is the murder of her husband. Lily Ross is inspired by a real Ohio woman named Maud Collins, who also became one of the first female sheriffs in the United States after her husband, also the sheriff, was murdered. Jess's most recent novel, The Echoes, was published this past March and follows Lily and the townspeople of Kinship, Ohio, as they reckon with ghosts of World War I, some 10 years later. Many of the men served, and while some, like Lily's brother, died in the Great War, many others came back with emotional scars that affect their personal choices and the town at large. But first, Carrie, I have a new friend who likes to record with me. Your your little feline friend. Yes. My daughter has a new cat. His name is Miso. And he loves to sit on my desk while I am recording. He thinks that's the perfect time to get <laughs> belly rubs. And so if you hear purring in our episode. <laughs> that's him because I just don't have the heart to throw him off unless he starts walking on my laptop, in which case then I throw him off, which he has <laughs> tried to do. <laughs> so, so what's going on with you? Uh, so I've been doing a bit of a, a new gig. I'm working with high school seniors, helping any that are sort of in danger of not graduating. I'm helping them sort of pull everything together so that they can graduate on time. I mean, I think when people think about kids who may not graduate, I mean, they're kind of thinking of, you know, kids who just don't care. And I'm sure, mm-hmm. sure that there are some of those. But some of them are English as second language students who are actually very bright, but are having a hard time grasping the Canterbury Tales or Beowulf <laughs> in yeah. English. Yes, for sure. And, and then kids who have certain learning issues, they can qualify for special education assistance where they get extra time and and they get things. But there's a lot of kids who they have some issues, but their issues aren't bad enough that they qualify, but they're bad enough that the kids struggle in some way. You know, maybe they just have trouble focusing or, you know, not everybody has an easy time learning certain things. And so I have been having to relearn some things myself. Last week, I was having to Google all sorts of things about real zeros and complex zeros and helping a student figure out what those are and and how to figure them out when your exponent is a five. I mean, oh God. (laughs) Yeah, I am learning a lot. There are just some kids that literally they need one-on-one help. You know, we've had, I think, as of last week, eight kids finish eight classes. So a couple of them have finished what they need. So they'll be able to graduate, which is great, you know. And I bet that feels good to help somebody who maybe felt a little overwhelmed and just kind of needed a cheerleader and someone to help them one-on-one. That's awesome. Yeah. It's one of those things where sometimes I'm cheerleader and sometimes I'm just the mom in the room going, put your phone down. 
and finish yeah. this work, you know, but they need that too. They need just somebody there in a, in a small, just quiet room with very few people and a pain in the butt who'll come over and poke them and go focus. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty good at doing that. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a special talent of yours. It is. It is. I'm kind of a pain in the, can I say ass? I'm kind of a pain in the ass. But <laughs> So, so what's going on with you? Are you having book? book I'm having some book frustration. It's not a slump. I'm not having a reading slump. I am having an existential crisis. All the books I want to read. Like, I think I put five books on my list yesterday that I want to read. And it's not that I'm not enjoying what I'm reading. I am. I just am like, oh, am I ever going to get to these other books that I want to read? I don't know. It's it's like a never-ending problem. I mean, there's always been tons of books that I've wanted to read, right? Like, I don't know why suddenly I'm having this angst about it. <laughs> I have books waiting for me that I need to read for certain things, right? Oh, they're gotcha. books I want to read. Gotcha. But mm. like our book club book, I haven't started yet. And I'm not going to be you... there because I'm going to be I'm going to so be So what difference does it make? You don't have to read it on time. I know I don't. <laughs> I know I don't. It's like the rule follower in me, right? Yeah. Like I'm not going to be there for our book club discussion because I'm going to be out of the country, but part of me feels like I should have it done by then just you... because you need to shut that voice down. I know. I need, as my husband would say, you need to chill the F out. But yeah, um, I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't know. It's just the little rule follower schoolgirl in me that's like, no, I need to get all my assignments done on time. Mm. <laughs> so you don't even have to finish the book anyway at all. I don't, but I want to read it. <laughs> that's the thing. I want to read all the books. I want to read them all and I can't. I know I can't. Oh, this is above my pay grade for figuring out your book psychological my- drama. <laughs> Here's the thing too. I put books on my my Libby hold list because I see books that I think, oh, I hear are good audiobooks, right? And they all come at one time. And so the nice thing about Libby is you can manage your loan. And so if you're like, oh, I can't do that right now because I still have five hours left of the one I'm listening to, mm-hmm. deliver it later, which is fine. I can do that. But then told him deliver it later four times. I start feeling this pressure. I really need to get to that. But I'm a slow audiobook listener. So do you tag books on Libby that you want to listen to? Or do you just automatically put them on hold? I don't know how to tag. Oh, I need to show you how to tag because then then you've got them in Libby. It's almost like having a Goodreads list in Libby. So you know like, oh, these are audiobooks that Libby has that I want to listen to. And so uh-huh. what I do is I tag them and then if I need an audiobook, I don't have to go back to Goodreads. I've got that list on Libby and then I just scroll through and I see what's available. Oh. And so I don't have to put them on hold. That might help me. Okay, yeah. that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll show you how to do that. And then that way, you've got them there in Libby, but then you can see that one has a weight on it. So I'm not even going to put a hold on that. But oh, look, this one's available. And then you can you can get it. Oh, Kara, you might have changed my <laughs> life. So I am a book psychologist. You are. You might have helped my book frustration yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. good. Oh, Okay. Hey, you know, I solved a problem for you, which is a little bit like, you know, I mean, a crime is a a problem to solve. A mystery, you know. So let's talk to Jess and find out how she writes mysteries. 
Jess Montgomery, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So Jess, your books have been on my radar for a little while. I'm I'm glad that I finally got a chance to read one because I love a good book about a strong Appalachian woman, and that is what your (laughs) mystery series is about. So before we talk about those a little bit, you say that you come from a long line of storytellers. So talk about that a little bit. Right. So my family on both sides are from Appalachia, same county, and for generations, I'm the first born Ohioan. So I grew up hearing stories about, you know, what life was like before sort of the great diaspora out of the Appalachian area to find jobs and factories and whatnot. And I also kind of pestered my grandmother and great-grandmother and aunts and great aunts and uncles to tell me stories. So I got stories that way. And then my maternal grandmother taught me a lot of ballads So I just learned, you know, various ballads and gospel songs from her. And of course, you know, especially the ballads are stories, you know, they're stories in musical form. And my father, who actually had uh, dyslexia and and just went through the eighth grade and had a hard time reading or writing, but was a super smart man, he would tell stories. He was just a natural storyteller. As he got older, when I would accompany him to medical appointments, his accent got a lot thicker. So I'd have to tra- I'd have to translate uh, between him and the doctor, and he just could never answer a, a question in a straightforward way. He'd have to, it would always start with "Well," <laughs> launch into some yarn about whatever that would eventually get to the uh, answer. So that's why I say that. You're a historical mystery writer, and, and you've written four books in the Kinship series. So what was the spark that led you to write the first book in the series? So our younger daughter went to Ohio University, which is in the southeast corner of Ohio, and thus in Ohio's Appalachian area. And I was looking for a place that we could take her hiking. She majored in outdoor education. So I was just researching, like, where can we take her to go hiking? Because she would love a break from the town, the college town, that we could handle. (laughs) Because she, like I said, majored in outdoor education. She played rugby, a little more fit than mom and dad. (laughs) Just in doing that research, I came across Vinton County's visitor site and an article about Maude Collins, who was the first female sheriff in Ohio in 1925. And so therefore, one of the first sheriffs in the country. And I was just struck by the few photos that I could find of her. She just looked tough and tender at the same time. And I I was trying to imagine what it would be like to be a sheriff in 1925 in a very rural area with a couple of kids. I think she had like five kids in real life. And she became sheriff because her husband was killed in the line of duty. But then she uh, ran for sheriff in her own right and won in a landslide in 1926, which I find amazing. And my imagination just kind of went from there. And I also honestly got to thinking, well, you know, I wonder if in real life Maude, you know, wanted to have revenge. There was no mystery as to who killed her husband. And of course, I started thinking about, well, what if, what if she didn't know? Then she'd have to investigate, right? And I was going through some things with my mother and her side of the family that I felt like my mother wasn't being treated correctly. And I kind of wanted revenge. (laughs) (laughs) So I started out with that sort of attitude as I was, you know, playing with the idea of Lily. 
but eventually Lily and I <laughs> realized what we really wanted was healing and a way to pull community together as best we could. And that's one reason the, the series is called Kinship. The county seat in my book is Kinship. This kinship is the idea, not just of a place name, but of community, whether that's a family unit or a church or a book club or a town or, you know, community forms in all kinds of ways. So that's where it came from. Have you always been a fan yourself of mysteries or historical mysteries? I have always been a fan of mysteries. I'm happy to read historical mysteries or historical fiction, but, you know, for me, mysteries, (laughs) whether they're contemporary or historical, is, you know, the way to go. When I was first starting to write years and years and years ago, I played around with romance novels and then realized that all I was reading was mysteries. So it takes me a while to learn lessons, I think, in life. But it hit me that, you know, if what you're reading are mysteries, then maybe that's what you should be writing. Who are some authors who you like to read or who have inspired you? Well, early on, it was definitely Sue Grafton, Tony Hillerman, you know, the classics, of course. Now I, I've read, I think, everything by Lori Roy and anything by Laura Lippman. And I, I would be stunned if I ever read anything she wrote and didn't love it. And I like William Kent Kruger. He's just a master of atmosphere and, uh, you know, just that rich, I'm falling into this world and this point of view. So what do you like about writing in the mystery genre? I will admit that I do very much like that there's a very basic structure. You know, you know, if you're writing a mystery, somebody's going to get murdered <laughs> Someone's going to have to be the bad guy and someone's going to have to figure it out. So you have three major characters, prototypes at least, in mind to begin with. So that's a kind of simplistic answer, but I think a little more deeply, there's something comforting about a story in which the world falls apart. You know, there's been a murder, one of the worst crimes we can think of, right? So all is chaos in this story at the beginning, but by the end, there's some resolution. It might not be you know, super happy. It might not be, you know, I've certainly read mysteries where at the end there's, there's a a, a bit of sorrow, which actually I kind of like those when you get to the end and it's not just, well, we caught the bad guy and they're in jail and everybody's okay now, you know, people are changed by something that major and yet life can find a way to reform and go on in a new normal to use a hackneyed phrase. So I I think I like that sort of outlook. There's some comfort in that, especially since we live in a pretty chaotic world. What are the challenges for you of writing mysteries? Probably the same thing I just said helped, (laughs) 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 Uh, actually, because, you know, you do have to hit these beats. And, And because there's so many good mysteries, I always feel a little intimidated and a little challenged, like, okay, how are you gonna make this fresh and surprising so that your reader isn't going, yeah, I've, I've read this 15 different times. You know, you, you think about the, the books I write, a, a sheriff who solves crimes that happen in their territory is okay. There are a lot of books like that. So what's fresh and different and interesting mm-hmm. about what I'm writing or, you know, what anybody else is writing. So I think that's a challenge is finding the unique twists, not just in the characters, but in the plot lines. And then, of course, there's always the terror of, you know, you want to put in the red herrings and some hints and clues, but it's a tightrope walk between you don't want to give too much away 
you don't want to make it obvious. You don't want your reader on page 25 go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I see where page 300 is going to take us, you know. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to make it so convoluted that they're lost. And, mm-hmm. you know, you also you want it to be a, a challenging ride, but not leave any little threads dangling, you know. Mm-hmm. So getting that all woven together just so is is the challenge. Your books are called the Kinship Series. And as we've talked about, they're set in Appalachia, Ohio in the early 1900s. So what kind of research or preparation did you have to do in order to get this particular setting right? I did quite a bit. I went to the area fairly often where where Maud lived and, and worked and ultimately died. I talked to a couple people who their parents or grandparents had known Maud and her husband. I read every article I could find about her situation, partly because I didn't want to even accidentally copy her life because my books are not about her. They're inspired by her. So she and Lily are the same in that their husbands were killed in the line of duty and they became sheriffs in 1925. Appalachia. And, you know, without Maud, I would never have come up with that, honestly. I would never have thought to myself, yeah, it's entirely plausible that a Mm -hmm. woman would have that role in that time and place. So I did a lot of that kind of research. And like I said earlier, my forebears were tobacco farmers. And I kind of grew up, especially on my mom's side, hearing this phrase, the saying of, well, at least we weren't coal miners, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I always thought was a little snotty. But I realized as I started thinking about it, that maybe what they meant was as hard as it was to be a tobacco farmer and later a factory worker, gosh, at least we weren't coal miners. That's really hard. So I wanted to make sure I got that right and didn't rely on stereotypes. So I read lots of books about uh, the history of coal mining. And I talked to a couple of retired coal miners in one of the towns. So it's kind of a half ghost town that's in that area. And just sort of listened to them tell their stories. I actually was just, you know, driving around and came to this town and saw coal mining museum <laughs> and like this label coal mining museum. That's all it said <laughs> with a number to call if you wanted to visit it. And I had no cell phone reception, so we went back to the state lodge where we were staying, and I found a spot in the lobby where my cell phone would work and dialed what I thought was the number, but maybe because I was holding my cell phone up into the sky. (laughs) I had an off-by-one error. I dialed like one of the digits, a different digit. I honestly got the competing coal mining museum there's and a I competing coal there mining was a, museum? Yeah, wow. there was a competing coal mining museum, which I wasn't <laughs> even aware of. We hadn't driven past it. And so when I explained who I was, and I started to apologize that I'd called the wrong number. The guy was like, oh, wait, no, you can't go to that coal mining museum. You have to come to our coal mining museum. And I thought, well, you know, bird in the hand, fine. Uh, so I set up that I would visit with him the next day. So off we went back to that town. And the coal mining museum was the old train depot, which they had renovated. It was quite lovely, very beautifully done. And he was a little wary. I I don't blame him, but he had a little bit of that Appalachian attitude of, uh, you're not from here. And are you taking me seriously? Or are you here with a superior attitude? And once he realized I was okay, (laughs) he asked if I wanted to go into the coal mining museum. And I said, yes, I very much would. (laughs) And he said, well, you know, it's heated by a coal-powered 
uh, stove. Are you okay with that? And I said, sure. Will you show me how to light it? And I think that won him over that I wasn't (laughs) afraid. One of his buddies came over and it turned out his buddy sadly had had cancer. Mm -hmm. And so they got to reminiscing about growing up in the town and what that was like and the stories they had heard from their grandparents or their parents. And, you know, they just sort of forgot I was there after a while, which was great because then they just started chatting about, oh, I remember this. I remember that. And they pulled out an old uh, WPA film that was from the 30s, so further in time than my era. But they ran this flickering black and white film and would point and say, oh, yeah, or, oh, I remember that candy store that was still around in the 60s when I was a kid. What's a WPA film for those who may not know? During the Great Depression, maybe, I've, hopefully I've got the uh, acronym right, there were artists who would go around and do films or do write articles or create art about people's experiences in rural areas and small towns. And an artist had come through as part of that program and made a little film about their, their town and life there, a silent film. And so did, were you like taking notes while they were just reminiscing? Yes. There's a scene in The Widows near the end where Lily and Marvina have to go into I don't want to do too many spoilers, but have to go into basically a, co- a collapsed new mine. And that came from them telling a story of that actually happening hmm. in real life, that there was a, a hill that the coal mining company said, oh, we know there's a fresh vein of coal. And if we're just going to go ahead and blast in, and there happened to be a graveyard on top of that hill. And after they blasted in, underground streams broke free and it, where they blasted, flooded, and several caskets came falling mm-hmm. through into this man-made cave, essentially. And, you know, the one guy said, yeah, my dad talked about how he was one of the men who got in a canoe and rode in to try to get the caskets and the bodies out so that they could be reburied with respect. And I was just stunned by that and asked permission to use a variation of that story in my story. And they said, oh, sure. You know, they pointed out things in their very beautiful museum, like little teeny helmet. Well, that was for a 10 or 12 year old Mm -hmm. boy. So he could go in and scurry forward and light dynamite sticks and then scurry back out, hopefully in time through these thin passageways. So it it was very helpful. So I did that kind of research. I do a lot of reading and, and that's where I either verify ideas or find ideas, a little bit of both. So you mentioned Lily and Marvina from The Widows. So let's talk a little bit about about those two characters. There's a bit of jealousy between them, especially at first, but then there's also this developing knowledge that they are stronger if they work together. So is that an idea that sort of always interested you? And, And how did you successfully work to blend those two ideas together? So when I was originally drafting The Widows, which is the first in the series, I just wrote from Lily's point of view. And then I realized she wouldn't know that much about her husband and his childhood. So I started writing a little bit from his point of view, which was kind of interesting since he's the victim (laughs) at the very beginning of the novel. I actually wrote about, I think, like 80 pages from his point of view, none of which appear in the book. But it was an interesting exercise because it helped me to really get to know him. And at some point in those 80 pages, you know, he's remembering 
that he'd run away from home briefly and he's sitting by the river and he sees this young woman and she's just sort of flailing in the water and he gets her out and rescues her and turns out it's this girl who's also running away from home who's a couple of years older than him named Marvina. And as woo-woo as it sounds, once she was up on that shore, she was just like, I'm not going anywhere. I am in your book. <laughs> it kind of hit me. I think that was my subconscious going, hey, you need somebody who knew Daniel, Lily's husband, the sheriff, who is the victim at the beginning of The Widows, who knew him before Lily knew him, so that you get a full picture of this man who's no longer around to, to speak for himself. And so at that point, I thought, okay, they, you know, they're going to have to meet. And yeah, there's going to be some jealousy going both ways. Just to be clear, Daniel was physically faithful to Lily, but, you know, he remained emotionally attached to Marvina, his childhood friend, and never told Lily about her. So obviously that would stir some feelings of jealousy and surprise. So it was interesting to think about, okay, there has to be an arc for each of them in the book, but also an arc for their relationship. I didn't want the whole book to be Lily being jealous of Marvina or Marvina being jealous of Lily and how she's in a much better lot in life than, than Marvina because Marvina is super poor and Lily as the wife of the sheriff, you know, isn't wealthy by our standards by any means, but is doing okay. So I just thought, great. I want to see how they can become tentative friends and then become friends. And I liked that because it was sort of overthrowing the trope of women as competitors, especially where men are involved, that they could have a relationship and a friendship that was theirs and realize that, you know what, we were going to be friends regardless of Daniel. So it was fun to play with that. So you had mentioned when you were talking about the stories of the coal miners, one of the things when I was reading the book that made me think about how much women contributed to the hard work of getting better treatment at the hands of mining companies and just in general in organized labor. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about making her the champion of sort of the, the labor movement in the story. Right. So she's very loosely inspired by Mother Jones, who mm. was a big champion of unionization and labor rights from the late 1800s, you know, on into the first part of the next century. And you know, she was instrumental in all kinds of organization, not just coal miners, but other types of workers. And so there's definitely a historic record of women wanting fair working rights for the men in their lives or for themselves if they happen to be somewhere where women could or did have jobs. And it, it makes sense because, you know, especially in the 20s, especially in rural areas, women were very dependent on the men in their lives. And if you're married to a coal miner and he's paid in script from the company and you do all your shopping at the company store and there's no health insurance and there's no life insurance, and suddenly, you know, you're widowed and you have a handful of kids, what are you going to do? So there's a personal self-preservation need <laughs> for mm -hmm. women to have workers' rights for their men, but also, you know, a compassionate reason of, hey, wait, you know, I don't want my husband to die in a cave-in or be maimed or, you know, have lung disease. So yeah, I drew on those elements from history. 
Well, and I guess too, like you mentioned, the hard hat, if these women had sons, then potentially they were looking at, you know, losing maybe not only a husband, but a a child. Absolutely. And, you know, and I can see where, especially if you have several kids and hey, you've got a son who's 10, 12, 14 years old and you need some extra income. Well, you know, what a hard choice. Tough times. So I'm wondering when you began the series and and you had established Lily and you set how she behaves, how she reacts to things, but then you're adding books and different situations down the line. Do you have to change her character or do you feel like you can sort of let her be who she is? Or is there a concern that if she reacts in a different way than what readers would expect that you might get? complaints you know because the reality is all of us change right like we we age we have different experiences and so the way I reacted to things when I was 30 is not the way I react to things now right because I'm a different person but I think people you know especially if they love a character in a book they really don't want that character to to change that is a challenge and you know it helps that each story so far is set one year apart So I didn't change a whole lot between, say, 27 and 28. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that helps a bit. And I also have the belief that, you know, we have lessons we need to learn, each of us, in our lives, right? But it's not once and done. There's a reason Mm -hmm. people go to the synagogue or the mosque or their church or, you know, wherever they find spiritual guidance over and over. Because we don't just hear one time, love your neighbor as you love yourself and go, Oh, I get it. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Right. We get it in theory, but then it's really hard to do in practice, no matter what the lesson is. So that's part of it. She does have to keep kind of learning a little bit over and over to trust her community and to love her community, even with its warts and its, its failings. And that's hard for her because she was kind of betrayed by her community in a couple ways when she was in her, her teens. So that's a lesson she gets to learn over and over. And of course, she's, you know, somebody pushing against the strictures of her time by being a female sheriff. So she gets to deal with that over and over. But I chuckled at the question a little bit because for the Echoes, which is the most recent novel, the fourth in the series, I did get a reader who complained that... She just didn't like how Lily treated a a new character by now named Benjamin. Benjamin had been friends with with Daniel in the past, and now there's a romantic interest between Lily and Benjamin. And, you know, this reader felt like, well, Lily should be a lot nicer to Benjamin. Why isn't she just being sweet and kind to him all the time? She kind of snapped at him a couple times. So so I'm giving it two stars. I just... And I thought, that's fine. You know, every reader can react however they want to anything I write or anything anybody else writes. That's their perfect privilege to do so. But it did make me chuckle because I thought women have to always be just so sweet and perfect, right? Even in fiction. Let's talk about your most recent one, The Echoes. So in this one, Lily is still sheriff of kinship. And in fact, she's been reelected. And she gets some surprising news about her brother who died in World War I and it affects you know, several people in the town. And I think one thing that's unique about a small town is that one person's actions or secrets have the ability to affect the community in a broader way than perhaps Mm -hmm. in a more urban area because everyone knows everyone else and everyone else's business. It's like its own little ecosystem, you know? So talk a little bit about 
the small town setting when you're crafting a mystery? Yeah, so she's sheriff of Bronwyn County, but at this point in time, the county seat, Kinship, doesn't have uh, a police department just yet, which is historically accurate. So she is kind of responsible for everything, including the county seat, as well as, you know, the towns and the places in between towns throughout the whole county. And yeah, people, you know, either are aware of or do know their neighbors pretty well. And in this particular book, it's 10 years since what they would have called the Great War, because they weren't aware that there was going to be a World War II just yet. And a good many men uh, from their area went off to fight and fought in the Meuse-Argonne battle. And that's historically accurate as well. There was a large contingent of men from Southern Ohio who went and fought in that particular battle. And you know, it's not really a spoiler. We know very early in the very first book in the series that Lily's brother, Roger, had gone off to fight and and died in that battle. Her husband, Daniel, fought but survived, obviously. And, you know, there's several other men from the town who, who went and came back. There's a character in the Echoes named Hiram who was friends with Roger knew Lily's husband, was about the same age as Lily. So, you know, they're kind of age peers. And he has what we would call PTSD. He's never quite dealt with the emotional trauma of that very brutal battle. And so it's affected choices in how that he's made in life. And the setup of this particular book is that another veteran has created a amusement park for veterans. Now, it's not an amusement park like we think of with roller coasters or bumper cars. It's an amusement park with uh, archery and a shooting range and a swimming pool and that kind of amusement park. And the park is set to open July 4th. And things go wrong, of course, because it's a mystery novel. (laughs) (laughs) And the ramifications of the choices all these men made 10 years before in the war play out in what happens in, in the rest of the book and in the town. You know, World War One, the memory of that and the and the people that they lost in World War One and their experiences there hang over the story quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so many of the men have some sort of PTSD, which they they would have called it shell shock, I think. But I know that that was a an issue that you really wanted to talk about in your book. Well, I did, partly because I mentioned my dad. He was a veteran of World War Two. And he was a Browning Automatic Rifle, BAR man, which meant that his life expectancy on the front lines in France were pretty darn low. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, he had an assistant gunner who was killed by a sniper fire right next to him in battle. He himself was wounded, went missing in action. My grandmother and grandfather had the horrible visit from the military with, you know, the news, your son's likely dead. He's missing, probably dead. Obviously, dad wasn't dead. <laughs> he was just wounded and wandering around and trying to find his unit again, So, which he did. And I didn't know any of this growing up, of course. I was a late in life baby to my parents. And so when I was you know, a little girl in the 70s, I would hear my dad sort of crying out at night every now and then. And I'd think, what? what's that about? Well, he's having nightmares, but I didn't know why. And I didn't know why until like the early 2000s. And when he said, you know, he started talking about this a little bit. And then when he 
was in his early 90s. My dad died of a stroke when he was 94. But a little bit before that, our daughter had gone into the military and still is in the military. And so I think that made him want to talk a little bit more. He was very proud of her, but he was really worried because, you know, he had served all those years ago. And I remember he looked at me and he said, you know, there's this thing called PTSD. And, you know, I've always sort of poo-pooed it when I've heard it talked about, like during Vietnam or what have you. But he said, you know what? I think I've always had it. I don't have nightmares as often as I did, but I still, even in his 90s, with a war that was 70 years in the rearview mirror, he still was haunted by his experiences and his losses. And I was really touched by that. And I was touched by his worry about her. And I thought, yeah, I think that's worth exploring, the idea of, of PTSD still living on in somebody's mind. And how do you deal with it when you can't really even identify it or talk about it? So if that was true for my dad in the 40s, that would definitely have been true for these men you know, who fought in the Great War. So all that kind of came together in my head, especially as, hey, this next book's going to be set in 1928. Hey, wait, that would be 10 years after Lily's husband and brother you know, fought in this war. So I, I decided that was a good book in which to explore it. One of the other themes that I saw in the book is the way that women in the book are much stronger than others or even they themselves give themselves credit for. And it reminded me a little bit of a TV show that my husband and I have been watching a series and it's set in Roman times. And my husband said, it must have been really hard being a woman back then. And my response was that it's been hard to be a woman throughout human history, period, you know. Yes. So your book is just kind of another example of that. And I'm wondering what kinds of issues are you aiming to highlight when you're writing your female characters? Well, I definitely prefer strong female characters. And by that, I mean women who think for themselves, can make decisions for themselves. Thank you very much. But I'm also interested in the notion that strictures on what it means to be a female are really hard on women, but it's really also hard on men. Mm-hmm. You know, they get caught in these, you know, and that's some of the, the veterans in, in this story, like they're supposed to be strong and tough and not talk about their feelings. Well, that's a male structure that's also not healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to show those kind of strictures like playing out side by side. Like this isn't really good for anybody, is it? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could all just be the humans that we are? And that is definitely something, you know, we still struggle with and, and will going forward. So I wanted to explore that. But I also had a couple on my father's side, I have he had two sisters, incredibly strong women. And his mother was also very strong and very inspiring to me without even knowing they were being inspiring. It was one of those you observe as a kid and the adults around you are leading by example, whether they know it or not. So just watching both of his sisters work in male-dominated jobs when they were young was inspiring to me. And so I kind of drawn their spirits to create the strength that I think is natural in Lily. And they've always been really strong women, you know, that are that have to kind of acknowledge, and Lily does this, she acknowledges that she has to play a, a role every now and then. Like in the second book, The Hollows, her mother reminds her, you have to enter your pie in the pie contest, even if you're <laughs> sheriff and you're busy. And Lily all but rolls her eyes and goes, yes, and sort of, you know, passive aggressively goes, fine, I'll make a vinegar pie. And so she- <laughs> makes a vinegar pie and surprisingly does not win the pie contest. Um, So women have always had to juggle that. And I think, you know, to some degree men as well. 
Well, I did notice that in the book, men do have to do it too. But when you're reading a mystery and it's a male law enforcement protagonist, you mm-hmm. don't, I don't think, see them multitasking in the way that Lily's having to do. She has to that be a mother. Very true. She has to yep. cook. She has to take care of the farm. And she has to mm-hmm. be a sheriff. That's a lot yep. of things to be juggling. But she has a lot of help from other right. women in her life. You know, her yeah. mother, her friends. I can't think of a male protagonist in a in a mystery like this who's having to worry about taking Child care. care. You You're know. absolutely right. But, but you know, I would read that. I think yes. it would be fascinating. To, I do, to yeah. A, a single dad, for whatever reason, with a couple kids. And how is he going to... That would be refreshing, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. It um, would be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always thought it must be so challenging to write a mystery because you have to make the plot make sense by the end and all those loose ends need to be tied up. But with historical mysteries, you have that added component of the research and making sure that those historical details are accurate and that they aren't anachronistic. So does it ever sort of make your head spin trying to keep (laughs) up with all of those different things? Yes, it does. And I have so many spreadsheets that are supposedly there to help my head not spin and yet they make my eyes cross Um, (laughs) because I do worry about not getting the details just right and when I was working on the widows my husband came home from work one day he said oh how'd the writing go today I said oh it was really challenging he's like oh character development plot snags and I said no no I had the scene where where Lily's she needs to beat some eggs and I just I wasn't sure what kind of egg beater she would use (laughs) And I spent all day on eBay and I spent all day and I did, I spent like time on eBay and Googling and called the library and I wanted to get the egg beater just right. Cause I knew if this, you know, was ever read, somebody was going to be a kitchen appliance expert and know that I had picked the wrong egg beater for 1925. And my husband, who's a statistician looked at me and said, couldn't she have just used a fork? Uh-huh. And I thought that was hilarious, but also true. And it was this great moment where it taught me, part of it was, I knew that I was giving myself an excuse not to really write that day by being so obsessed with egg beaters. But it was also a great reminder of, it's really important to get the coal mining stuff right, for example. There's a section in The Widows where Marvina speechifies for about a page or so about mining disasters. And that's absolutely accurate. I put so many hours of research into making sure and double checking and triple checking uh, what she references just for that one page because I wanted to get it right. So that's really important. Using, you know, a fork to beat the eggs, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Do you plan to continue with Lily in the the kinship series or do you think you'll, you know, down the line tackle a, a different set of characters? Well, right now I'm playing with uh, some ideas for standalone suspense that would also be historical. So I'm having fun with that. I love Lily and the kinship community. So I kind of miss them, but it's also, it's like taking a little mental vacation Mm -hmm. to see, you know, what else can my imagination come up with? But I'm certainly not opposed to returning to kinship eventually. Well, I think that's a good place for us to pause. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We 
are back with Jess Montgomery and with Carrie. And Carrie, I hear that you're going to talk about a book that you can't even say the title of. (laughs) I am. It's a book called, well, this isn't the actual title. Stuff Cassandra Saw, but the word isn't stuff. It's the word that (laughs) rhymes with hit and has an S on the front, but I don't want the FCC to jump down my throat. So this book is by Gwen Kirby. I listened to it as an audiobook, and it is a book of essays about women, threats to them, and rage. And it is brilliant, or maybe I'm angry, or maybe both. I'm not sure. But women, I think, a lot of the time have, you know, they have some things that they could be angry with about the world and how it operates. The story titles in the book can tell you a lot about the content. So I'm going to try to read this first one. But again, I'm having to sort of tweak some of the language (laughs) so that I don't get in trouble. So the first story or essay in the book is called Stuff Cassandra Saw That She Didn't Tell the Trojans Because at that point, F Them Anyway. (laughs) So it's about Cassandra. So in the Greek mythological stories, Cassandra was punished by a god and she was able to see the future. So that that's the first story. The, The one story that actually stuck with me the most was an essay called Jerry's Crab Shack One Star. So it's a Yelp review written by a man and it goes way off topic and has him delving into the complexities of his marriage. You get a real sense of why he's sleeping on the couch and not with his wife and writing a a Yelp review at like one o'clock in the morning because that review is less about the restaurant and it's really just about him. And so I just love that one because it it just went haywire. So it isn't often that I like a book so much that I want to buy it and just keep it on my shelf so that I can pick it up at any time and look at it again. But this book is one of those. I just really thought it was great. It gives you a lot to think about. There's, There's a lot of different stories. You know, some are about women who are, you know, in their late 30s and 40s and who are married. Some are about younger women who are just starting to experience some of those frustrating things that impact women, you know, how they're treated by men and how they're treated by society. So again, the book is Stuff Cassandra Saw, but the word isn't stuff. It's the word that rhymes with hit and has an S (laughs) on the front. And that is by Gwen Kirby. So highly recommend it. Would you recommend the audiobook? Did you like the audiobook? Yes. Yeah. So the audiobook, it was actually narrated by, I think, about five different people. So different readers would read different essays. So I, I liked it. Yeah. So, Jess, what have you been reading? Well, your description is so compelling. I want, now I've, I've made notes. I'm going to go get this book. Um, well, this isn't a recently read book, but I want to mention it anyway. It's Deer Season by Erin Flanagan. She's a, a good friend of mine, and we actually live in the same town. And she just won the Edgar for first novel of, oh, wow. for Deer Season. So I felt that was important to give a shout out to her. It's also historical, sort of. <laughs> it's set in the 1980s in Iowa, and it's set in Deer Season. And a young girl goes missing at the same time that a man who's developmentally disabled goes off on his first deer hunting trip. And he's, of course, ends up, you know, being accused of, you know, what happened to this girl. And it just sort of pulls apart this era and this town and what we think of one another 
and maybe stereotypes we have about one another. And it's, it's one of those books, like what I said about William Kent Kruger, that you just sort of, it's so rich. You just sort of fall into this world, into these viewpoints. Uh, one of the viewpoints is Alma, who helps her husband run a, a pig farm that Hal helps them on. And she's always very concerned about poor Hal. And so, you know, we get the point of view of a woman working on in this farm in Iowa in the 80s. And it's so beautifully written, well-deserved, the Edgar for best first novel. And so I highly recommend it, Dear Season by Erin Flanagan. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. Oh. And I keep envisioning Alma as Frances McDormand. Oh my gosh, that would be perfect casting. Yeah, like from Fargo and, and yeah. been in some more recent ones that I can't think of the names of now. Carrie can probably help me out because I know you love Frances McDormand. I do like mm-hmm. her a lot. Yeah. Uh, but, she, you know, she's she's kind of kind of crotchety, a little bit edgy. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> actually, Carrie, you might you might be a good person to play Alma, too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> anyway, I am really enjoy I'm really enjoying it. So I co-signed that that recommendation. Amy, so is that the book you're going to talk about? No, no. no. So you have another one to throw at us. Another one, yeah. So I just finished uh, a book called How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. It was published last summer. And if you read White Fragility or Stamped from the Beginning or How to Be an Anti-Racist, this is another book around that topic of race that you should add to your reading list. So I heard about this book from a very close friend of mine. We have very similar reading tastes. And recently she posted on Facebook about this book. And she rarely does this, but her post said that she had just finished reading this and she thought it should be required reading for every American. So Mm. Clint Smith is a poet and and he's also a contributor to magazines such as the New Yorker, the Atlantic and the New York times. This book is nonfiction and it explores how different historical sites and monuments. I believe he talks about seven in total deal with their relationship to the history of slavery. And he starts Mm. out in his hometown of new Orleans. And then he travels to places like Monticello Jefferson's home He goes to Angola Prison in Louisiana and the Blandford Confederate Cemetery in Virginia, just to name a few. But not all sites are in the South. He also goes to Wall Street in in Manhattan as well. And at each of these sites, he does extensive research about the place and its history and especially its place in the history of slavery. And then he compares that to what the history being taught about those places is. Some sites are doing a better job than others about sticking to the true facts, as opposed to sort of smooth over stories that have been passed down that ultimately sort of changes the history in the public eye. And he delves into if places are trying to avoid painful things in their past about these sites when telling their history. So one of the most powerful lines in this book is, history is written by the perpetrators. And what we learn from Smith's book is that the gaps you find in our country's historical storytelling are gaps that always benefits the groups that are in power. So I appreciated the way that this book was organized into sections by the historic site that he visited, and each site brought up different questions to think about. And this book was more manageable to me because it gives you digestible chunks of information that made you view things in a different way. And so one of the most interesting sections to me was about Angola prison in Louisiana. And I did not know that Angola is on the grounds of a former plantation. And I also didn't know that much of the prison population 
which is majority black, as they were doing reconstruction after the war, were captured for small offenses and then imprisoned and then made to work for free. And so they were working the fields, they were keeping the grounds, or if they were paid, it was as little as like 35 cents an hour, according to a former inmate who was released recently about 10 years ago. So basically, it was just a different kind of slavery. And so that chapter was really appalling, but enlightening at the same time. So I listened to this on audio and the author Clint Smith is the narrator. And sometimes you can hear a little of his poetic voice come out. So I highly recommend the audio version. And I think that this book is especially important right now uh, to read now that state governments are trying to decide whose history can be taught and whose rights mean more than others. Uh, Censorship has much more far reaching consequences than just whether one book is in a library or not. So this book was long listed for the National Book Award in nonfiction. This was a five star book for me. And I highly, highly recommend it. The name of the book is How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. So that's fascinating that he wrote about actual plaques. So I want to jump in and can I add one more book recommendation? Sure, (laughs) absolutely. Okay, because that idea reminded me of the book Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. And it's it's a collection of short stories and then a novella. And the novella at the end is... Office of Historical Corrections. And the premise is there's an office, you know, a government office where the job is to go and find plaques <laughs> and correct them. And how does yeah. that play out? So she oh, did a cool. fiction version of that. And I love that story slash novella collection. So that's Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. Be a good companion. Oh, that would be a really good thing to pair. Yeah. Yeah. They might be interesting companion pieces. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right. Well, these all sound awesome. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, Jess is going to answer her three in the third degree. All right. We're back with Jess Montgomery. Jess, are you ready to answer your questions? I am. Number one, what is an activity you choose to do when you are stressed and need to relax? So it would either be fishing. Um, I belong to a little fishing club nearby. So if it's a great day, I love to go to the this little fishing lake and get my line tangled up and look like a goofball trying to bait <laughs> my hook. Um, every now and then I catch a fish and then I, I do catch and release. But there's just something about being out there that I just I forget about worrying about the world. So I love that. If it's not a great day or I don't have time to go fishing, I'll just pick up some crochet and crochet for half an hour. Carrie's got the crochet thing going down. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question about the fishing. Was this something that someone taught you when you were a child or was it something that you sort of took up as an adult on your own? This is something that someone taught me when I was an adult during the pandemic. And that someone is my daughter, (laughs) the outdoor education major. So she left outdoor education to go to law school near us. And then the pandemic hit and all of her classes were virtual. So she came home for a while to see, you know, how things were going to play out. This is early in the pandemic. And we all decided we needed to get out of the house. So we went over to Southeast Ohio, where Lily's from, and rented a little you know, cabin and nearby was a, a lake. And so we put on our masks and rented a pontoon and she brought her fishing gear and she's like, you want to give it a try? And I'm like, sure. 
<laughs> sure, why not? And she showed me how to do it. And it's a terrible pun, but I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I kind of love that fishing was this mother-daughter bonding experience because that is not something you hear very often. This is true. And now <laughs> yeah, I fish more I than it. she does. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so question number two. If you could describe yourself in three words, what would you choose? And would your family or friends choose three different words for you? Um, three words for me. One would definitely be persistent. Another word would be anxious. And a third word I think would be funny. I think I'm kind of funny. <laughs> um, my friends and family would agree with persistent. I don't know if they would agree with anxious or funny. So they would probably say persistent, but then they'd add stubborn because, you know, I'm really <laughs> persistent. And I think the third word would be probably community because I'm very much about my family and friends. So you don't think that they would think that you're anxious? That's like just something you keep to yourself? Well, I'm very honest with people about, oh, I'm feeling, you know, I think I'm anxious. And they're like, but are you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Maybe you just me? don't give off those anxious vibes. Yeah, I think, I think probably what happens is that I feel anxious and then I don't want to feel anxious. So it, it looms much bigger in my head than, mm. than it really is in terms of how I act with people. All right. Question number three. So you talked a little bit uh, when we first started speaking with you about ballads in your life. So how do ballads relate to your husband? <laughs> That's a great question. So as I said at the beginning, I learned a lot of ballads from my grandmother. She had seven kids. And so in her elder years, she rotated among all seven. They all lived really close to each other. And so she would spend a few months with one and then a few months with another not sure how great that was for her because I think that would be very uprooting to move around like that for 20 years but that's what they chose to do and that's what she chose to do so that's what happened and she taught me all these ballads and so in high school I decided I would write a play called Just an Old Ballad and so I took a sort of generic plot it turned out to be a murder mystery by the way um <laughs> But with music, and I used some ballads, and I, I wrote some songs, and got permission to direct and cast this play. For some reason, the English department at my high school said sure, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was very encouraging. But looking yeah. back, that was pretty brave on their part. You know, they didn't know how this was going to go because they already did three productions a year that were led by teachers, of course. And so I got to cast the play, and uh, one of the people trying out for the male lead was this really cute guy named David. And I cast him in the lead role and I cast his girlfriend at the time in the female lead role. Oops. I found myself feeling very jealous and like really angry at the writer of the play for having a scene where they briefly kissed. This really oh. thing. Um, <laughs> they broke up and I ended up dating this cute guy named David and we've been married now for 38 years. So oh. <laughs> that's the best thing that's come out of my writing life is, is writing that play and meeting him and marrying him. Too bad you didn't cast the girlfriend as the uh, villain. That would have been better. You know, I, you know, I did have probably a moment where I thought, could I rewrite this? Um, <laughs> it, was, it was too late. <laughs> Jess, it has been so fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us on The Perks. Oh, thank you for having me. 
You can find Jess Montgomery on Instagram at JessMontgomeryAuthor or on her author website at www.JessMontgomeryAuthor.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.PerksToBeingABookLover.com. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.